I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon. Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more. Tegan, when your kids were younger, did they ever watch the show Blue's Clues? Oh, of course. Great show. Great show. I I watched my share of Blue's Clues, too. I'm sure you did. And what was your favorite part of Blue's Clues? Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, the human character in Blue's Clues actually reminded me of your friend, Steve, that you grew up with. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's a pretty small world joke, but so we'll, we'll have to deal with that one. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just hoping Steve is listening. That's I'm all. sure he is. I, now we'll find out. They are different Steves, although they've never been seen in the same place at the same time. So maybe they're the same ones. But do you recall, did you have a favorite part? Did your kids have a favorite part? It was in every episode. It was a staple. My memory is faded. I don't remember. Mail time. <laughs> Mail time. <laughs> It is mail time, Chris. Guess what time it is, Tegan. It is mail time. It's mail time. Do you have an oversized mailbox that you're getting the mail out of right now? We do. We've got uh, a lot of incoming. So we thought we would dedicate an episode purely to the mailbag. Quick reminder, if you want to send questions for the mailbag, we do read them. We include many of them in the podcast. Here's how to send them. You can contact Tegan via Political Wire. Email me by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now let's get on with the letters. The first one comes from a longtime friend of yours and mine, Chuck F., who writes about Mike Pence and climate denial. Hi, Tegan. He wrote this one to you. Thanks, Chuck. As an avid listener of Trial Balloon and a subscriber to both you and Chris, I hear you both talk about the key Republican strategy points, but I'm curious what you think about their insistence and consistency on climate denial and drill baby drill mentality. Now, Chuck used a different word. He didn't use the word mentality, but I thought we would make it a little more balanced and we would use mentality. Sorry, Chuck. I can only think it's a combination of pandering to fossil fuel-backed donors, appealing to the handful of constituents who still hold fossil fuel jobs, and a wedge issue from Democrats. But given the existential crisis, climate crisis he means, wouldn't it be smarter to tell the truth and actually work on solutions? It's such a pleasure to hear you and Chris on the air. Thank you, Chuck. And it was a huge pleasure to get an email from you. Hope all is going well. Tegan, what do you say to our friend Chuck? Well, I know that Chuck lives in California, and California is kind of like at the forefront of a lot of climate problems that are going on. And so it must be something that Chuck uh, is concerned about every day. Although the more you look at the United States, the more climate change is impacting all of us. I hear that as we record this, that Florida has now got record highs, just like Arizona did just a few weeks ago. But what do I think about it? On the one hand, I think Chuck is absolutely right. I think that climate denial, particularly in the Republican Party, came first because of big donors, the fossil fuel industry, donating to Republican candidates. I think that that was the start of it. But I think there's something much more that's going on right now. There has been this general distrust among Republican voters of virtually anything of authority at this point. I think it's probably easier to convince Republican voters of the idea that climate change might be a hoax, as Donald Trump has frequently called it, because I think a lot of Republican voters right now are very skeptical of anything that sounds like authority, and that includes science. And so the Republican Party has in many ways become the anti-science party. And so some of these arguments Chuck is putting forth just really don't hold weight on them. 
as much as I would love to believe that you can kind of just put the facts out there and have Republicans work towards solutions with the Democrats at this point, I think the Republican Party has a much bigger problem and it's standing in the way of a lot of these solutions. You only have to look at the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act that included so much of this climate spending. That was not passed with Republican votes and the Democrats had to put that through on their own. So not a lot of Republican support for Chuck's line of thinking right now. Let me ask you about the thesis, and then let me ask you about a statement that you just made and see if there is a difference between recognition of the problem versus agreement on solutions. I have got to say that I feel like I've been hearing more frequently, and my memory is, of course, failing me, but I almost feel like it was a Mike Pence interview in the last week or two where one Republican candidate for president was asked about climate change, and it was asked the question was, do humans have an impact on the climate change? which of course for years was part of the climate denial, was that, no, this is just part of the natural ebb and flow and that's just what's happened and give it a few years, whatever. And the answer was, sure, of course, humans have had to have had some impact on climate change. I remember that because it really struck me as significantly different from any response that I feel like I had heard or the typical response over the last years. I was kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. An acknowledgement of that seemed pretty interesting. One, have you noticed that at all? Because I feel like I've noticed it more and more. Second question is, if there's some accuracy to that, and maybe there's less of a disparity around the identification that there is a climate problem, the part where I think there is just no overlap is in terms of solutions. And Chuck's point around drill, baby, drill, I think that there is a lot of disdain for wind and solar as viable options, dependable options. I think there is a sense that if a move needs to transition away from fossil fuels, that a more reasonable, longer term plan needs to be put into place. I think that's what Republicans would say. I think that Democrats, many Democrats would say otherwise and would say that we don't have time, right? I would think that our good friend Chuck would say, there's not time for that. We need to move off of fossil fuels yesterday. I'm wondering if the dichotomy or the gap is slightly less in terms of defining the problem, but potentially even widening in terms of the solution, and we didn't even talk about the potential for nuclear. No, I think that's a very good observation. And I agree with you that there is seemingly greater acceptance of the fact that what we're experiencing with climate change is man-made. That's only minor movement towards recognition here because a new Maris poll that came out within the last week or so, it showed that a majority, 56% of Americans believe climate change is a major threat. That includes nine out of 10 Democrats in a majority of independents. But 70% of Republicans said it's either just a minor threat or no threat at all. That's what Republican politicians are listening to right now. Republican voters do not believe the science behind climate change. They don't see it as a threat. So whatever we're seeing around the country, whatever we're experiencing in California, in New York, in Arizona, in Miami, it's not resonating with Republican voters. They may agree that it's the result of man-made policies, but they don't see it as a threat to their way of life. They don't see it as a threat to the economy. And so they don't see it as something that you need to take action on. I think you just hit on it at the very end right there. And that was going to be my question. I don't know if the poll defines what defines threat. 
when people said, do they find it as a threat? They might be looking at the exact same event. Let's just call it a massive heat wave in Phoenix that keeps the temperature, whatever, above 100 or 110 for 31 straight days, whatever that was. Some people might say, oh, that's pretty bad. That's threatening. And others might say, yeah, it's a little hot. It's definitely uncomfortable, but that's the price of living here. So carry on. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point in how you define this and how the communication behind climate change is phrased, I think makes a big difference. In this same poll, what do Republicans find as a priority in this country? The priority should be the economy. Now, anyone who's studied climate change knows that it will disrupt the economy tremendously. It already has disrupted the economy. If those who are advocating for action on climate change were to make this an economic issue, perhaps there would be some reception among Republican voters. However, I'm pretty skeptical about this. Like I said at the beginning, I think there is a distrust of scientists that we see in the Republican Party. As you mentioned, we saw it during the pandemic. We saw it in relation to vaccinations, in relation to COVID in general, in what the risk was. We've seen it now for years in climate change. So there is a distrust of science among many Republican voters. And I think that's what we're really fighting against at this point. Unfortunately, as much as I would like to do, as Chuck said, which is find some common ground and work on solutions here, right now, I think there's a big obstacle in the Republican Party. There is. And the item that you raise, the distrust of science, I think you would agree that's representative of the distrust of elites. And we could go back to a discussion about the best and the brightest. And there is a massive distrust, some of it properly earned, of elites. And scientists get bucketed in with elites because what do they know that I don't know? I do my own research, Tegan, you know that. You've heard people who want to do their own research, and sometimes that's understandable. I mean, it could be fatiguing to have to research so many things, but there is a distrust of elites. And yes, in this particular case, the example is a distrust of science or scientists, but that's to the heart of many campaigns out there right now, certainly of Trump's campaign. You can't trust the DOJ. You can't trust the FBI. can't trust other institutions. This topic that Chuck has raised, the point that you've identified about the distrust of scientists, that's one example of it. And a great question by Chuck. Yes. Thank you, Chuck. Always great to hear from you. And I'm guessing Chuck might have a follow-up because he very well might be listening to this on his iPhone out for a run in sunny California and saying, oh, you guys don't understand this at all. That's not what I meant. And you forgot about X, Y, and Z. So Chuck, send it in to us, please. And we'll set the record straight. Ready for mailbag number two? Number two. Let's go, Chris. So we go from California to Copenhagen. And our good friend, Casper K, who sent us a question several months ago, back in March, and has another one. And this one is a two-part question. But the heart of it is around extreme measures for extreme results. That's what Casper calls it. He gives some context here, and I think it's useful to listen to. He writes, the bar for acceptable political shenanigans seems to be becoming lower and lower as Washington becomes increasingly gridlocked. We've witnessed the filibuster being abolished in many areas, the Senate's refusal to consider Obama's Supreme Court nominees, the blue slip rule being ignored, access to voting becoming restricted, gerrymandering becoming the norm, and a couple of other items that he raises. 
Discussion of new extreme measures also appears to be the new normal. For instance, Casper writes, should the GOP impeach Biden for being a Democrat? Should Biden expand the Supreme Court? Just stack it with friendly judges. Should Biden instruct Treasury to ignore the debt ceiling if Congress won't raise the limit? Should the Democrats make D.C., Puerto Rico, etc. into states, making it easier to get a majority in the Senate? You have previously spoken about using extreme measures to achieve extreme results and the morality thereof, so I'd like to get your thoughts on the following. I've recently noticed people talking about expanding the House of Representatives. To provide a bit of historical context, and Casper says, bear with me, and I was about to cut this part out of the question, but it's actually interesting. So thank you, Casper, for this context. Before the Reapportionment Act of 1929, the size of the House was supposed to grow along with the population. However, in 1929, the size was capped at 435, which still stands today. This means each member of the House represents about 760,000 people. In comparison, the numbers are about 45,000 in the UK, 70,000 in France, and 80,000 in Spain. Only Afghanistan and India have a higher ratio. And he cites a Wikipedia page that we should put in the show notes, list of legislatures by number of members. The idea being proposed is to triple the number of representatives to 1,305, bringing the citizens to member ratio down to about 250,000. That would still be higher than most of the world, top 20, but not as extreme. Each district would then elect three members to the House, which would essentially render gerrymandering obsolete. If a district is one-third Democratic and two-thirds Republican, instead of electing just one Republican, they would elect two Republicans and one Democrat. There's an added benefit or fault of the Electoral College changing as well. The number of electoral votes each state receives is the sum of its senators and House members. With the suggested expansion, Delaware would receive five electoral votes, about 200,000 per EV, and California would receive 161 electoral votes, about 240,000 per EV electoral votes. Smaller states would still be overrepresented, as intended, just not to such an extreme degree. So, Casper has two questions. One, do you agree with the premise that the measures used in American politics have become more extreme? I think that's very hard to disagree with, but perhaps you will take it. And this conversation will go into a wholly unexpected direction. And two, what are your thoughts on expanding the House? Is that too extreme? Is it even possible? Or is it just a pipe dream like the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact? Great questions from Casper. So first of all, before I get to those questions, I decided to look at our statistics for Trial Balloon, and Trial Balloon has been heard in 72 countries right now. Denmark being one of my favorite, and it's my favorite not because I've been there, though I would like to go. It's my favorite because my favorite political television show, Borgen, was set in Denmark, and the political strategist who stars in that show is named Casper. I'm hoping that it's the same Casper, even though he's a fictional character. Who's asking this question? A real character asking the question, fictional character in the show, right? Exactly. As far as we know, real person. I think Casper obviously makes a good point. If you look at the United States, you look at impeaching officials, it seems to be something that you just do now at this point. Republicans are talking about impeaching multiple cabinet members. They're talking about impeaching Joe Biden. They haven't even started inquiries into whether or not there are crimes for which you can impeach these people. You look at the use of the censure in the House of Representatives. This was a relatively rare tool that was used before. 
you know, I think there had been 20 years since the last censure before Paul Gosar was censured by the Democratic House. And Adam Schiff has been censored by the Republican House as well as Ilhan Omar. So yes, obviously everything has gotten more extreme. And the idea behind Casper's question, should reactions become more and more extreme in terms of how governing is happening? Sure, expanding the House of Representatives is one thing. There's also been discussion about expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court. I think both of those should probably be looked at. I think it's a little bit more dicey when it comes to expanding the Supreme Court, because obviously the goal behind that is simply a power grab and either party could do it. The Democrats could try it at this point, expand the number of seats in the Supreme Court because the Senate could confirm Joe Biden's appointees and you could radically change the makeup of the court at this point. But of course, that would be met by the same thing as soon as Republicans you know, were able to win control of the White House and, and of the U.S. Senate as well. Expanding the House, though, is a little bit more interesting because obviously that's done simply on population. The biggest threat that I see or the biggest ability to generate chaos would be massive redistricting that would be taking place all across the country in the games that would be played with the redistricting. And so that's one of those things where I don't think many people want to kind of go there at this point. But if they did, I think it would open a can of worms like we've never seen. There would be worms everywhere. Among the things that's interesting about Casper's idea, so there's the practical question or question of practicality, and it's hard to conceive of a practical way of that occurring, the way that you just described. By the way, I happen to believe it's hard to conceive of a practical way that increasing the Supreme Court would even occur. Like Even that feels very difficult to me. In terms of effect, it's interesting to me that Casper's self-described extreme solution would be an extreme solution, quote-unquote extreme, that would serve to reduce the extreme imbalance of electoral votes versus population. Here's a potentially extreme solution, again, Casper's description, where the net effect, as he just described it, would be to reduce some of the extremism in the system. You know, if I were going to market Casper's solution, that certainly would be one avenue to market it. It's an interesting point. I think the bottom line is that the ramifications of moving more extreme in terms of how you govern are unknown. And I think that that's where the risk is. I mean, we have seen our politicians get more extreme. We have Donald Trump mocking Chris Christie's weight. We have Donald Trump making fun of journalists with handicaps. The rhetoric is more and more extreme as we go, and then the actions become more extreme. Feel what you want about the rightfulness, but there's no denying it is certainly extreme in American history for a former U.S. president to have been indicted multiple times. Trump went from two to three times. Yes, he did. Could be more by the time this airs. We are talking from the distant past on this episode, but nonetheless, it could be more. So there could be superseding indictments, all the rest. The extremism in American politics is real. These actions, while they sound good in principle, even in practice, I think they can get very confusing. And I think that you end up with a tit for tat. Donald Trump was impeached twice during his presidency, in my view, deservedly so in both instances. Currently, House Republicans are talking about moving this fall with an impeachment proceeding against Joe Biden. Mitch McConnell, of all people, is saying impeachment should be rare because otherwise it just incentivizes the other side to do the exact same thing. 
when we have the situation like the Supreme Court, that would simply be a power grab that would never end. They would simply go back and forth between Democrats and Republicans, whoever controls the White House and Senate at the same time. I think Casper's idea of expanding the House of Representatives is certainly not that. I think it's certainly interesting when you look at just the practicalities of representing going from 750,000 constituents to 250,000. Perhaps it makes a congressman or a congresswoman's job easier, but I do think that it just unlocks all sorts of interesting ramifications. The redistricting that would have to take place being the most obvious to me. The way redistricting happens in this country, it would open up a huge set of uh, legal fights that I, I don't even think that we're prepared to do at this point. Yes. Well, there's a lot there. And uh, great thanks again to Casper for continuing with the emails and the really great and intriguing ideas. Please keep them coming. Let's go to mailbag question number three, which comes from Mike O., who has written me a number of times. I've had a really nice email exchange back and forth with him for more than a year now, maybe two years. He is part of an organization called Reform Elections Now, and he's very, very, very not only interested, but feels very passionately about the importance of ranked choice voting. And he responded to our trial balloon episode from July 21 that was titled, Can Anyone Beat Trump for the GOP Nomination? He highlighted that and emailed back to me, without ranked choice voting, how can Trump miss getting the nomination if there are two or more opponents splitting the vote? So Mike was very nice. He didn't start that with, hey, dummy, like kind of an obvious question. Can anyone beat Trump for the GOP nomination? The answer is no. But Mike, of course, is really interested in the concept of ranked choice voting. So is that something that you've thought about? Is that the way to stop Trump? Well, I think it's a great follow-on question to Casper's question, really, because it is seen as one of those extreme measures. Let's change the voting system. Let's move to ranked choice voting. My own personal view is I am a big fan of ranked choice voting. And the reason for it is that I think it would take out some of the extremism that we currently see in our party primaries and in terms of how we choose candidates you know, in the general election. And the reason for that is it tends to moderate the candidates that win. Assuming that the electorate ideologically fits a bell curve, it is harder for extreme candidates to win when you get to choose your second choice and your third choice and your fourth choice candidate. And so the candidates that end up emerging in ranked choice voting tend to be more representative of the voters ideologically. And so some of these lawmakers that we see, whether it's Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene or people on the left, you know, like Ilhan Omar or people like that, those people would find it probably harder, depending upon their districts, to win in a ranked choice ballot. And we got to see that in effect in Alaska in the last congressional race, where we actually did see, although a Republican congressman had vacated the seat, we ended up seeing a Democrat win in Alaska because Sarah Palin was running for the seat and she was deemed as a more extreme candidate. And it allowed voters to choose their second choice candidates in a way that it allowed the Democrat to actually win in a state that most people consider a red state. And this was a statewide election. So I do think that there's a lot of merit to ranked choice voting. And I do think it fits that extreme action question that we got from Casper. I think it is one of the extreme things. Let's change the way that we vote because party primaries tend to nominate much more extreme candidates. And so if we actually had jungle primaries where, you know, based on ranked choice, 
I do think you end up getting candidates who are more representative. And I do think that that ends up increasing the faith that voters have in their government. Uh, I'm sure you know ranked choice voting was used in the New York City mayoral election. In addition, a quick search here, yet to your point, it's used at the presidential level in Alaska. It was used in 2020 in five of the Democratic Party presidential primaries, Alaska, Hawaii, Kansas, Wyoming, and Nevada used it for absentee caucus voters. It's used in Maine. And then there are various state and local elections. So it is interesting because we've bucketed it, and I can only imagine Mike might be tearing his hair out right now saying, wait, ranked choice voting is not extreme, guys. You're putting this in a bucket with other extreme ideas. This is not extreme. Not only is it not truly extreme, but I, I know you know this, it's being used right now, you know, as opposed to increasing the size of the House of Representatives or stacking the Supreme Court. Ranked choice voting is in play right now. Oh, yeah. And I only mean it's extreme by changing the voting system is extreme. There's nothing yes. crazy about ranked choice voting, though. Ranked choice voting makes a ton of sense. And as you said, as you noted, it's been implemented successfully in many areas. It's one of these voting systems that I think was probably much harder to have in a pre-information age voting system. You know, I think you do need computers to be able to calculate the winners. If it were implemented nationwide, I think you would find a much more representative Congress, for instance, much more representative Senate. And I think you'd find many fewer of these candidates at the edges and who seem to be really just in politics for other reasons other than trying to represent their constituents. Thank you. You just saved the tone of the email, the next email that I would get from Mike. He doesn't have to now be angry with me for our calling it extreme, but instead he and I can continue our very, very substantive email exchanges. I think this leaves just the obvious question from these mailbags, the one that was left unanswered. I'm going to take Mike out of it because he's from the local area here where you and I live in New York. But I think that starting with Chuck, who you noted in California, and Casper in Copenhagen, I think that given the fact that we're in August and it's vacation time, if you had to choose, who are you going to go visit? You're going to go visit someone in California or are you going to Copenhagen? I won't say California just because I've returned from California within the last few weeks. I'm going with Copenhagen. I also hear there's great food in Copenhagen. You know what? Maybe our trial balloon offsite needs to be in Copenhagen. I too have reason to go to California and am looking forward to that. And I too have never been to Copenhagen. So there it is. Casper, you find the location. Dinner's on us. Absolutely. Talk to you soon, Tegan. See you later, Chris.